isn't it good to be back here on Sunday morning together like this? You can, you can be happy. I, I don't know if you guys know that you can be happy in church. You can, you can, let me give you some blanket permission to do that. It, it's, a, it's a great thing to come back and be able to just be with each other like this. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1. Robert mentioned that next week we're beginning a new series on Christian beliefs uh, that we're entitling The Real God for the Real World. And as we sat down and, and talked about how, how, do, how do we begin that kind of a series. Well, it, it seemed good to us to take one week as a sort of introduction. And that's what we're going to do now, is just go through today and get an introduction, because it's important to not only say or to confess together what we believe, but also to have some real understanding of why we believe it. And that's what today's message is about. It's, it's about a belief that comes before everything else that we can say we believe. A belief so foundational to the Christian faith that it really serves as the basis for everything else that we believe. And we'll come across it eventually as we get to the end of chapter 3 and on into the beginning of chapter 4. So let me pray for our time and then we'll begin reading in 2 Timothy chapter 3 verse 1. Uh, Father, we need your help this morning. I desperately need your help. On, on one level, the things that I'm going to talk about this morning are things that I'm familiar with. They're certainly truths that have shaped and changed my personal life and the lives of so many in here. Uh, but we, we can't just approach things like this with the assumption that we know them and, and certainly that we're able to communicate them without the help and the assistance of your spirit. And so we, we ask for your spirit's help now. And, and, and as your spirit comes to be with us in a special way, I, I just pray that you would change us according to your desire through your word, and through your spirit. And everybody, if you agree with that, say, Amen. Amen. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1. Paul, speaking to Timothy, said, But Timothy, understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness, but denying the power. Avoid such people, for among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also opposed the truth, men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. But they will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all, as was that of those two men. You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured. Yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and impostors will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, Continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for faith, or rather for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. I charge you then in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. 
Lord, help us again as we, as we try to explain and, uh, and to emphasize what you are emphasizing for us through what Paul said to Timothy. In Jesus' name we pray and give thanks again. Amen. When, when Paul wrote this letter, he was, he was well aware of the fact that his time on earth was coming to an end. In fact, he acknowledges as much in the verse right after where we stopped. If you look at chapter 4, verse 6, he actually says there, I am already being poured out as a drink offering and the time of my departure has come. He understood that he was a dying man or close to his last days and, and he spoke with the urgency that belongs to dying men. He only had as much time to tell Timothy those things or to remind Timothy of those things which were most important and essential for any Christian who desires to be faithful and effective in this life. And so what would Paul take his last biblical breath to tell Timothy? That's what we read in the second half of this letter. And when we read it, and we'll do this as we come across it today, as we go through the passage, we'll discover that Paul looks at Timothy and and among many other things, he looks at Timothy and says, listen, Timothy, and everyone here today at Redemption Hill, listen very closely. You have to be absolutely clear and certain regarding two things about the Bible. And those two things about the Bible need to shape and drive your entire life and everything about your ministry. And there are two very important reasons why you need to allow your ministry to be shaped by these truths of the Bible. And so as we read today, we're going to come across two very important things about the Bible that should drive and direct and shape our lives and our ministries for very important reasons. And let's start in chapter 3, verse 1, and eventually we'll, we'll come to those things. So a couple of things you want to notice as Paul begins. He says to Timothy, understand this, that in these last days... There will come times of difficulty. Now you notice that phrase, the last days. That's a very popular phrase in Christian circles today. Lots of books have been written about the last days. One is entitled, Are We In or Living in the Last Days? And it's a very large book. (laughs) I looked at that and I thought, not to say anything about the people who wrote it, but I thought, surely there's got to be a way to answer that question more concisely. And so, here it is this morning. Uh, Look at Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 to 2. If you've already gone through that whole book, then don't kick yourself for this. But Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 to 2. Are we living in the last days? Verse 1. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his son whom he appointed the heir of all things and through whom he also created the world that's Jesus so in these last days God has spoken to us through his son Jesus the last days are determined by the appearance of Christ and God's decision to speak through him directly as opposed to indirectly through prophets Jesus coming and speaking to the world marks the beginning of the last days you see this again in Acts chapter 2, verse 16 and 17. You can flip there. Take, take some time. Go ahead and flip. Just go back to the left. Make sure that I'm not making this up. By the way, as a congregation, you have a responsibility to make sure that we're not making things up up here. So keep your Bible out, keep it handy, and f- follow along with us. Acts chapter 2, verse 16 and 17 This is on the day of Pentecost here. People are trying to figure out what's going on. The Holy Spirit has been poured out. People are speaking in other languages that that they don't seem to have learned in the usual manner. And and everyone's trying to figure out what could be going on. Some people theorize that maybe they were slightly drunk. And Peter said, no, no, these men are not drunk as you suppose. It's only the third hour of the morning. I don't know what he meant by that. I, I didn't know if he was saying if you caught us later, maybe. But that's not, that's, I have no idea why he mentions it's only the third hour of the morning. But, but in any case, here he is in Acts chapter 2, verse 16. And he says, no, this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the, everybody, last days it shall be that God declares, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. So there you have again something in the Bible which teaches us that the last days are not something we're still waiting for. 
but something which actually began or was inaugurated some 2,000 years ago. So that, that will take care of that. Back to 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1. We are in the last days, and therefore, what Paul tells Timothy here in this part of the Bible is just as relevant and important to us today as it was to Timothy, because we live in the same times. And so Paul goes on in 2 Timothy 3, and he says to Timothy that not only will there be difficult times in the last days, but then he goes and tells us why these last days will be so difficult. In verse 2, it's not, not primarily because of inclement weather and hurricanes and earthquakes and, and all that type of thing. No, the difficulty that arises in these last days is primarily because of the people who live in the world. Look at what he says in verse 2. There will be times of difficulty for or because people will be lovers of self. And that, that's another thing you want to notice. The primary thing about people that makes these times in which we live so difficult is what people love. We, we love the wrong things way too much. And chief among that list of things we love way too much, self. You might say that everything else he lists here grows out of that. In fact, that's kind of how it's written if you understand biblical literature. Love of self. Now, watch this. Here's what's so interesting about that. Isn't there a whole movement out there today just telling us that we need to love ourselves more? That loving ourselves more is, in fact, the solution to the problem of the world? Now, isn't that rather interesting? Because here the Bible, the Bible presents it as the cause of the problems in the world. Now, which one do you believe? Do you really need to love yourself more? You know that self-love is not really commanded anywhere in the Bible. When the Bible says love your neighbor as yourself, it's really assuming that you already love yourself enough. In fact, way too much. And that you ought, you ought to turn that love somewhere else toward God and toward your neighbor. No, self-love is not the solution. More self-esteem is not the solution to the world's problems. It's part of the root cause. It's, it's born out of the fall. It's born out of sin. All right, so, so here it is. Can you imagine, Heather, if I, if I, if I actually, in our home, if, if that's what I did, I just, I just need to love myself more. I, Jennifer Lopez actually said this. You know, she recently divorced her husband, Mark Antony, and, and, and she's quoted. They did some kind of interview. I forget which channel it was, but I was up way too, too late, and that thing was on. <laughs> And, and I, I just listened to what she said. This guy was interviewing her, her ex-husband and, and had a prepared statement there, a quote from Jennifer Lopez. And, and she said, you know, basically, I, I know my marriage is, is gone now. It's lost and I'm divorced. But, but I'm, finally, I'm finally doing what I need to do for myself. I'm finally loving myself. And I, and I thought, while we can be sympathetic toward whatever was behind her, her mind and her thoughts when she said that, it, it's, I just, five years down the road, I wonder what she's going to think about that. All the freedom and all the promise and all the reward that she thought would be there on the front end of that, I just, you guys know how that ends up. It's just, it, it doesn't quite work. Self-love, self-love is, is very overrated. Let, let's move on so that this doesn't take forever. People will be lovers of self, lovers of money, Not much needs to be said there. Proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents. Again, much less needs to be said there. Ungrateful, unholy. In fact, I asked Heather last night. I said, who does this list remind you of? She's like, really? Uh, Kira and Brianna, I think. (laughs) I think, uh, and girls, when you're old enough, if this is still around, your mom said it. (laughs) I agree, but we we don't really have to mention that. No, we've all been there. In fact, this is a good point to, to point something out. When, when we read a list like this in the Bible, what, what religious people typically do is we come and we immediately think that's talking about them. Those are people who don't really come to church, who don't believe anything that we believe, who aren't as moral and upright on the surface as we are. But, but keep, watch, watch this. Keep reading with me, and by the time we get to verse 5, tell me what you notice. 
disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Now watch this. Having an appearance of godliness, but denying its power. We're talking about people here who on the surface have an appearance of godliness. Now where do you find such people? Yeah, I I would say a gathering like this qualifies. We're talking about people like you and me. On the surface, very moral, perhaps very religious. An appearance of godliness. But when the more you get to know them, when you see them not only in public but in private. Listen, who am I when I'm not up here speaking to all of you in this place? I've got an appearance of godliness here to be sure, but is there any substance behind it? Or do I deny the power? You know, one of the ways we typically deny the power of godliness today, having a form of godliness but denying its power, is, is it's very popular even today in certain circles of the church to, to talk about our sinfulness in such a way that we're just stuck. You know, I'll just always be this way. I mean, after all, good theology tells me that we're deeply sinful. Well, of course, sin is something we'll contend with for the rest of our lives. But that doesn't give us an excuse or, or lead us to the place where we, we say that the, the Holy Spirit at work in us makes no difference. Denying the power of godliness and settling for some sort of form, some appearance of it. No, no, God never intended for good and sound theology to be an enemy. He never, he never wanted it to be that way. We don't turn that on ourselves and say, well, I'm just stuck here. No, no, no. You, you, we just read it earlier. Thanks be to God that though you were once slaves to sin, you have become obedient to that form of teaching to which you were delivered. And now you have become slaves of righteousness, leading to sanctification and its end, eternal life. There's real change. Don't deny the power of godliness and settle for some surface level form or appearance of it. So we're talking not just about us, but then there's a a twin mistake that we often make, and I want to avoid this one as well. If you've ever noticed, it's also very popular in some of these same circles of Christianity today to to make it seem like there's no difference between the believer and those who don't believe in Christ. As if somehow Paul is lumping himself into this list in verses 2 through 4 and lumping Timothy in there as well. But is Paul doing that? Is Paul saying, this is basically talking about me, and and you know what? We look at the unbelieving world today and we say, hey, there's basically no difference between you and the Christian. Again, we take the truth about our common sinfulness and we say, there's really no difference between us. And, And I think that this is probably more of a technique and a gimmick to make them comfortable and to stop them from feeling repelled by the church. When in actual fact, and you watch this, does Paul, all right, let's just read it. Does Paul lump himself and Timothy into this group of people? Even though I'm sure Paul could look at it and say, there are times where I find myself being a lover of self. There are times where I I find myself being ungrateful. There are times where I I maybe lack some self-control. But Paul is not saying that this is characteristic of his life. Watch. There are people who have an appearance of godliness but deny its power. Verse 6, for among them are those, or or rather at the end of verse 5, what does he tell Timothy to do? At the end of verse 5, what does he tell Timothy to do? Avoid such people. Now that's a problem too, right? If you take your theology and your, uh, your instructions for how to be a Christian in this world from popular teaching today, it's, it's mean. You can't say that. You can't look at Christians and tell them to avoid certain people, can you? Come on, everybody, look at me. Let's be honest. Come on, come on, look at me. Isn't that breaking the rules of modern Christianity? Look at your Bibles. What do your Bibles say? Is it a loving warning and a biblical command for Christians to avoid certain people? Yes. 
So here I am again pointing out difficult truth, which is my job as a pastor. I need to be able to look at you guys and to help you as a congregation determine who are those people I should avoid and who are those people that for the sake of the advancement of God's kingdom I ought to draw closer to. And this avoiding of certain people is for the protection of Timothy. It's not saying you don't pray for them. It's not saying that you're never around them ever. It's saying that you don't allow their current direction of life to pull you along the same path. Avoid them in that sense. Doesn't mean you never talk to them. Although in some cases that may be appropriate. And I know that's a hard thing for a Christian to say in in a modern climate. But there there are situations as a pastor I can think of right off the top of my head where it really is not your responsibility to be the one that is evangelizing this person that is subjecting you to all kinds of abuse. There are certain people where it's just, it's just wise to avoid. Anyway, I've, I've dwelt on that longer than I had planned to. Verse 6, among them, among those whom you should avoid, Timothy, for the sake of your own holiness and growth and progress in the gospel, among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women. And then I actually don't know if what follows this immediately is describing those who go in and capture these weak women or the weak women themselves But they capture weak women burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to come or to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Now, just as Janus and Jambres, these are the magicians from back in the time of the Exodus, just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also opposed the truth. They are corrupted in mind and disqualified concerning the faith. Again, I just, as I was reading this this week, I just cannot believe how blunt, direct, and straightforward Paul is compared to what I hear from, from many modern Christian teachers. Paul would be kicked out of most churches for saying things like this. He would certainly be shunned by the majority of believers there. Maybe, maybe we need to read our Bibles more than we listen to certain podcasts. The good news in verse 9 is that these men will not get very far. For their folly will be plain to all, as was that of those two men. And then it takes a turn. You, however, Timothy, don't go down that path in verse 10. You... You instead have followed my teaching. Do you see how Paul distinguishes himself from the former group? Timothy, you have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and suffering. I'm different. And you know it. You've seen it for years. It's not that I never sinned, but I'm different from the aforementioned group. And so are you, Timothy, and you need to remain that way with God's help. And listen, listen, everyone look at me, Christians. It's okay to acknowledge those things. There's a real difference. Shouldn't there be a real difference made when the Holy Spirit of God enters a human being? Shouldn't there be a real difference between that person and one who has not had that happen? Have we lost that? Have we become so theologically astute and politically correct today that we've lost something that simple? Do I have to actually stand up and explain that? I do. Because of what we'll read as we get into chapter 4. Paul says, I'm different. My persecutions and sufferings that happened to me, verse 11, in Antioch. This is around Timothy's hometown now. Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra in the cities of the province of Galatia. Which persecutions I endured, by the way. I didn't, I didn't just wish them away and I didn't, I didn't try to speak to them and get them to leave. And, and I endured them because I recognized some of them were from the Lord and they shaped me. Which persecutions I endured, yet from them all, even though I was stoned and other things, the Lord rescued me from them. Indeed, now you won't find this, verse 12, in your book of Bible promises, but all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. I I guarantee you, go buy a book of Bible promises, you won't find it in there. Do you know where you will find it? In your Bible. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. That Christian book that very few of us pick up and read anymore. 
in your Bible. It is right there. Do you see that in verse 12? I, I, I assure you we did not have time to write it in your Bible during all the announcements. Verse 12. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted while evil people and imposters... Is it okay to speak that way? While evil people and imposters will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. They will go on. They will progress. They will go in the wrong direction and make steady progress in that direction. And then look at the turn again in verse 14. But as for you, speaking to Timothy, continue. That word continue there, if you look it up, that word continue is actually one that means stay, remain, abide, don't move, don't budge. Others will be making progress in the wrong direction. Timothy, don't be a progressive when it comes to the truth of God. Stay right where you are. I'm not here to talk about what you do with politics, but when it comes to the truth of God in this Bible, stay put. There is no progress after God has spoken regarding truth. When God speaks, it's final and it's perfect. There's no, you, don't, you don't improve on that. You don't talk about a hermeneutical trajectory and all this foolishness that's going on today. Well, we'll just try to figure out the direction in which the Bible was taking us and extrapolate. I, I look at my college students, man, and I, I just want to, every time, if one of them tells me they're listening to, who are you listening to? Oh my gosh. Please stop. And, I, and it's hard to say that too. Just please stop. That person's on a trajectory, and you don't want to follow him. Get off as soon as you can. I love something C.S. Lewis once said. He said, you know, sometimes the most progressive man is the one who realizes he's going in the wrong direction, stops immediately, and goes back to the beginning. That sometimes progress is about going backward. Isn't that great? I love that. All right, let's, let's pick up where we left off here. Verse 14, as for you, continue, stay, in what you have learned and have firmly believed. Knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Now we finally, in verse 16, come to what I told you we were going to come to. We're going to see two things about the Bible here that all Christians should believe. I won't say all Christians do believe this, but should. Two things that need to drive our lives, determine and shape our lives, and absolutely everything about our ministry in this world and in this time. Verse 16, all Scripture is breathed out by God. There's, there's the first thing. All Scripture is breathed out by God. When you hear people asking questions or using as a way of undermining the authority, the integrity, and the validity of the Bible. When you hear questions like, yeah, but didn't man write the Bible? Well, yes, men did write the Bible. But that doesn't change verse 16. All Scripture is breathed out by whom? God. And Paul tells Timothy to continue in this what he has learned and has firmly believed. Listen, let me ask you do, you, do you firmly believe that? Listen, everyone look at me. Do you firmly believe that all, all Scripture is breathed out by God? Being breathed out by God, it is therefore completely authoritative. It is binding upon all people, whether they confess faith in God or Christ or not. It is binding upon every single human being created by God in need of His advice, His command, His word. All Scripture is breathed out by God. It is authoritative. We don't read Scripture as Christians and say, well, you know, I, I wonder about that. I, you know, I'm, I'm not sure. This is no time for you to be uncertain. These times demand certainty. They demand faith. They demand, they demand, now I'm saying, you can, you can ask questions. You can say, hey, what does this mean? 
how does this fit with this? That, that's fine. That's not what we're talking about. I'm talking about God speaks and says, don't do that. Sleep in your own bed. Don't speak that way. That's not your wife. That's not your husband. Leave him alone. Don't talk about those people that way. It dishonors me. And you say, yeah, I kind of, I'm just not sure. Or you know what? We're under grace, so that's not really important. I'm not under the law. This is no time for all that foolishness. When God speaks, it's final. God speaks, we listen, we trust, we obey. That is the posture of the Christian to the Word of God. When we sin, we repent. All right? So it's it's that clear cut. There's no... Well, I won't say that. All Scripture is breathed out by God. And now here's the second thing. It is profitable for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, and training in righteousness. And I'll give you a couple of Scripture references just to look up. In support of the first point, that all Scripture is breathed out by God, you can look this up on your own. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13. And 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 16 to 21. In fact, you know what? Put that up for me. I'll go, can I go backward? We're going to make some progress by going backward. I'll come back to point 2 in just a minute. Look, look with me at 2 Peter, if you could. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 16 to 21. Paul wasn't the only one that spoke this way or, or felt this way. Look at what Peter says again with his last biblical breath. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 16. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of His majesty. For when He received honor and glory from God the Father and the voice was borne to Him by the majestic glory, saying, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. You'll remember Peter, James, and John were with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration, and and I believe you can read that in Matthew chapter 17. But you can go and look that up a little bit later. But they were there with him on the sacred mountain, and you'll remember Elijah appears, and Moses appears, God speaks, great conference, what a great lineup of speakers. But, but here it is. Peter said, we were with him. Now, now, here's what I find so amazing. We were with him on the holy mountain, verse 19. And we have something more sure. Peter says, I am telling you to base your life on what we are saying about Jesus Christ. Base your life on what we are telling you about Jesus Christ, the Son of God who has come into the world taken the place of sinners, lived a perfect life before God, securing for us in His death on the cross full pardon for sins to all who trust Him, and rising three days later. Believe that with your life. Believe what we tell you about Christ. And then he says, and, and, and here's why you should believe it. You expect Him to say, hey, I was there, I saw Him in all of His glory. And then in verse 19, you would expect Him to say, now, now ask God to do that for you. Ask God to show up for you like that. Ask God to give you a similar experience. Wait for an experience like that to confirm what we're telling you about Christ. What does Peter say? Verse 19. We have something more sure than that experience. The prophetic word. Now, now stick with me here, right? We're going to read Scripture in context and allow what comes after this to explain what is meant by the prophetic word. Lest we just jump ahead and attach that phrase to something we have witnessed. Lots of prophetic words out there. We have something more sure, the prophetic word. Brother, I got a word. Is that what he's talking? All right, listen, listen, here it is. Better, better keep the book open at that point. All right. We have something more sure, the prophetic word to which you will do well to pay attention. 
It's the word to which you will do well to pay attention until the day dawns, or as a light shining in a dark place, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this, watch this, here's what we've got to know. Here's what we have to be clear about. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture, there's your prophetic word. There's your prophetic word that Peter is talking about. I don't know what the average person today is talking about. Actually, I do. I'm just not all that crazy about it. But the the prophetic word that Peter calls us to pay attention to is the prophecy of Scripture. And he says, know first of all that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. People don't just look at the, the times and the events and say, this is what I think that means and I think I'll write it down in a book and oh look, God picked it. I made it in. That's not how this works. No prophecy of Scripture was ever produced by the will of man. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by His Holy Spirit. God determined. It was God's will that said, I want that in this book that I'm going to keep for my church for all time. I want this thought that command, I want that word in this Bible, sit down and write. And then men spoke from God. So of course men wrote the Bible because God determined to use men to write the Bible. But what they wrote was never the result of their own will or their own interpretation of modern events. It was the will of God driving this thing. This book, at every single point, is the result of God's will to speak to us because we need his help desperately. 2 Thessalonians chapter or sorry 1 Thessalonians 2:13 Let's say you're sitting here this morning and you don't have this conviction about the Bible. Where can, where can you get some help? 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 verse 13 And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. Notice who who does Paul thank for this result? When people receive the word of God, not simply as the word of Raymond or as the word of Robert or as the word of Chris or as the word of Paul, but actually as the word of God, what it really is, who do we thank for that result? We thank God. You know why? Because God is the one who did it. God accomplished it in your heart. God gave you that conviction. Lord, I just pray, if there's anyone here without this conviction, that today would be the beginning of it because you worked in their heart. That you would bring now the conviction that all Scripture is breathed out by God and that everything in this book is the Word of the living God who created us. In Jesus' name, amen. That's where you get your help. Cry out to God. If you're sitting here and you know yourself well enough to say, I don't believe that about the Bible, then ask God to help you. I dare, I dare you to pray. Lord, if this is true about the Bible, change my heart. I dare you to pray that way. If you're an atheist or you don't believe this about the Bible, that's beneath your intelligence or whatever the case is as you regard it, you've got nothing to lose, right? Pray. Pray that way. Or maybe you need to consider why, as an atheist, you're afraid to speak to a God you don't think is there. That's why so many people say God doesn't believe in atheists. Because when it comes down to it, you're afraid to pray to a God that you don't think is there. Because you know he'll change you. And you don't want to be changed. So the first thing we need to be absolutely clear on regarding the Bible is that it is every part of it. Everybody say all. All Scripture is breathed out by God. And that, that is, I want to I specify here, all Scripture in this Bible with these 66 books recognized as the authentic Bible from God. All Scripture. This does not mean Scripture of other religions and that sort of thing. Again, this is not, this is not a time for me to be politically correct. That stuff's not included in what's being said here. We're talking about the Bible. 66 books, no more. All right, so there it is. All Scripture is breathed out by God. Number two, second thing we've got to be clear on. Scripture is, all Scripture is profitable for teaching, 
for rebuking or reproving, for correcting, and for training in righteousness so that the man of God will be competent, equipped for every good work. Now let's spend some time and really look at everything here in this verse. These two verses. Watch this. All scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching or for doctrine. Now, what would you make of a statement that I read recently? Very respected, won't name him, but very respected uh, Christian teacher who said, you really shouldn't take doctrine from the Proverbs or the Psalms. You shouldn't build doctrine from narratives. This is what I'm talking about, some of this theological astuteness, some of this theological training we're getting today. The, the Bible, you can just pick up the Bible and if you can read, it says all scripture is profitable for doctrine. And I've got some professor telling me you can't get doctrine from the Psalms and the Proverbs. And so my question is very simple. Professor, are, do you consider the Proverbs and the Psalms to be scripture? Well, yes, of course. Why isn't it profitable for doctrine? It doesn't even make sense. Now that person will stand up and say, I believe in the God-breathedness of all Scripture. And I look at the person and say, I don't think you do. I think you may think you believe that. But what you're telling me betrays something else. All Scripture is profitable for doctrine, for teaching. And not just teaching, but reproof. This, is, this, word, this word means pointing out what is not correct. Pointing out error. Exposing is the word. Exposing error. All scripture is useful for doing that, for exposing error. And it doesn't just leave us there. All scripture is useful not just for teaching and exposing error or reproof, but then for correction. Actually pointing out what is right. And God seems to think that all of these things must be done if we're going to be the kind of people he created us to be. And furthermore, and this is the one, I'll say this, this is the one where I think, I think even churches that are largely faithful to Christ and to the scriptures stumble at this point. All scripture is profitable for training in righteousness. Not just training people to be competent in certain ministry activity, but training people in righteousness. By the way, most times when you see the word training in the Bible, biblical training is about training people in righteousness and not just ministry activity. Most of the training of our current churches is all about ministry activity. You ever notice that? All scripture is profitable for training in righteousness so that the man of God or woman of God, the people of God would be competent Equipped for, what's the next word? Everybody say every. Every good work. So not only is all scripture breathed out by God and therefore authoritative and inerrant, but all scripture is sufficient. Scripture is sufficient for bringing the people of God to the place where they are competent and equipped for every good work. Scripture is sufficient for bringing the people of God to the place where they are competent and equipped for every good work. Meaning, you cannot think of a good work that God has not thought of and say, I need something other than Scripture to equip me for that and make me competent for it. That's what I'm saying, because that's what the Bible says. And I I find this conviction to be sorely missing from many churches, many Christians. They would never come out and say it, but watch how they train people. Watch how they equip people. Not a Bible in sight. Now tell me what that person believes. Am I to take their belief, their understanding of what they actually believe from what they tell me or from what I watch them doing? If Scripture is sufficient for equipping the church of God for every good work that God has in mind for His people in this world, then that's what we're going to use. Because watch this. Watch this. If God breathes out Scripture, 
so that we will be competent and equipped for every good work. It means that in his estimation, he looks at us and he says, you are incompetent and ill-equipped for the good works that I have in mind. Did you, did you follow that? We are incompetent and ill-equipped. This is why you never have to worry about admitting your incompetence. We are, God's already said it, it's a, it's, it's, that, that ship has already sailed. Right? That cat's been out of the bag. We are incompetent. I, man, I preach that to myself, actually. I'm always worried about that, being found incompetent. Lord, praise the Lord. Incompetent and ill-equipped for the good works God has in mind. And watch this. The beginning of God's solution to that problem is to breathe out Scripture. Man, do we hurt ourselves when we put this book aside and pick up something written five years ago. Unless that thing written five years ago does a very good job of helping us understand this. Scripture, Scripture, Scripture. Well, my church, my church needs to be instructed. There's a, a high degree of ignorance regarding the things of God and the will of God. My church needs teaching. Scripture. Well, but there's a lot of reproving that needs to be done. People have lots of baggage from former churches and ideas and, and things, and they can't figure out this thing and can't undo all these knots. And, and where do we... Scripture. Reprove. Yeah, but, but then we have to know what's actually right and in which direction to turn. We need, we need some, some guidance and some help, some correction. Scripture. Yeah, but then our people need to be equipped and trained to do the things that the church is called to do in the world. Scripture. That's what I'm trying to tell you. Scripture, 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 Scripture. The book. You show me a church, you show me a Christian that lacks these basic convictions about the Bible, that it is all breathed out by God and that it is actually sufficient, and I will show you a Christian or a church in decline. No matter how many people are there. Now, how, how should these convictions drive our lives and our ministries? Well, our life, very simply. You saw it in verse 14. Continue in what you've learned and have firmly believed. And our ministries, watch this, chapter 4. If all this is true about Scripture, I charge you then in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, by His appearing in His kingdom, preach the Word. You've got to preach. You've got to stand up and preach if this is true. And I'll tell you why. Why must we Preach the word. And not listen to those today who are saying, ah, do, do away with preaching. People don't need preaching anymore. They just need dialogue. Preach the word. Proclaim this thing. Stand up with boldness and clarity and handle the word of God accurately and preach and declare his truth. Why? For, because, verse 3, the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. It's not that people won't hear sound teaching. They just won't put up with it. And preaching the word is God's appointed means for dealing with a stubborn, obstinate world that will not endure sound teaching. Stand up and declare the word of God and let the Holy Spirit do his work. And don't imagine that you can be more helpful to the people of this world who are, who are as plagued by chapter 3, verse 2 to 4, and by chapter 4, verse 3, as, as we really are. Don't think you can be more helpful to them by doing something else. When it comes to their deepest spiritual needs, preach the word. Well, I'll end with this. I'll end with this. The word of God is not an end in and of itself. We come preaching the word of God precisely because it leads us to this man that is mentioned in verse 15. The scriptures are able to make us wise for salvation through faith in, everybody, Christ Jesus. Jesus is the end of our ministry, our preaching, of our use of scripture, our equipping the church. It is to point the entire world, first beginning with the church, it is to point everybody to Jesus Christ.
And here's, here's my, my ultimate desire for all of us gathered here today. Do you believe what the Scripture says about Jesus Christ? Do you believe that God so loved the world in this way that He gave His one and only Son so that whoever believes in Him would not perish, which will certainly happen to you if you do not believe in Him, but that instead of perishing, they would have eternal life in the presence of God? Do you believe that? That apart from faith in Jesus Christ, we perish. Just like a fruit separated from its source of life, take it off the tree, and it is dead the moment you separate it from its source of life. And what is dead will slowly decay and perish. A human being separated from God is perishing. No matter what it looks like today, that human being is perishing. That banana will look yellow the moment you separate it, but over time, brown, black, and it stinks. Human beings are perishing without Jesus Christ. And if there's anyone in here this morning who walked into this room saying, not only do I not, not only do I not believe this about the Bible, but I am certainly not someone who believes this about Jesus Christ. Here's my prayer. I I pray that you would turn from that error that you would see Christ and believe. He died for your sins on the cross. God accepted his sacrifice. God raised him from the dead, proving it. And he now extends to you full pardon, full mercy, and the offer of eternal life. Receive it. Let's pray. Lord, help us to have this kind of conviction about the Scripture. It's all breathed out by God. It is sufficient for carrying the church where you want the church to go. And more importantly, help us to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. As we go into our new series beginning next week, help us to see why it is we say we believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and all that is seen and unseen. One Lord Jesus Christ, His only Son, the Holy Spirit, one holy and apostolic church, one baptism for the remission of sins, the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Help us to be Christians who join your universal, historical, and faithful church, believing that to the day that we leave this place. In Jesus' name, amen.